With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Anticipation is building. The holidays are just around the corner, and at the Home Depot, we can't wait. With Black Friday savings all through November, you can count down to Christmas early with a Santa Countdown Inflatable Special Buy, only $69.98. Or anticipate when friends and family come to visit with an entrance full of LED lights that will welcome them and the holidays with open arms. Get the holiday magic started early. The Home Depot. How doers get more done. What makes a murderer? It's one of the greatest philosophical questions of all time. What is it that can drive one human being to end the life of another person? Ancient Greek philosophers like Aristotle and Plato came to believe the capacity to commit murder was driven by a person's poor upbringing. Still other contemporary Greeks came to believe that the evil mind was the result of an imbalance in the four primary bodily fluids, blood, yellow bile, black bile, and phlegm. Over the centuries, many other great and not-so-great thinkers would come up with all sorts of rationales why someone would become a murderer. Everything from demonic possession to an overdeveloped murder center in the brain. That last one is taken from the 19th century pseudoscience of phrenology, in which it was believed that all human emotions and personality traits could be quantified through a series of precise measurements to the human skull and to the specific localized portions of the brain responsible for individual character traits. I know, it's a mouthful. It's also complete nonsense. In the late 19th century, an Italian criminologist and physician named Cesare Lombroso thought that he had the answer. Lombroso is often considered the father of modern criminology and was well respected in his lifetime. So when he came forward with his theory on why some people killed and how to identify those potential murderers, people listened. He developed a theory he called anthropological criminology, which essentially stated that criminal behavior, including murder, was an inherited trait and that some people were born criminals. Lombroso claimed that you could actually identify a potential murderer based on their physical characteristics since he believed that murderers were more savage and therefore less evolved than more upstanding members of society. He came up with a long checklist of physical characteristics based on lower primates that he believed could be used to identify potential murderers. Things that included sloping brows, protruding ears, long arms, and asymmetry of the face. He also believed that murderers, thieves, and rapists were also less sensitive to pain and touch. So all you had to do was poke a person with a needle. If they didn't say ouch, then they were a murderer. Also, you might want to run. Although Lombroso's theories were quickly disregarded throughout Europe, they actually caught on in the United States and were taught for a brief time in many prestigious medical schools and universities. Lombroso died in 1909, but he managed to damage his credibility even with U.S. scholars, 
in the years before his death as he got sucked into the growing spiritualist movement that was sweeping the nation. In a very short time, Lombroso went from being an avowed atheist to a hardcore believer in seances and the afterlife. That was just a bit too much for his fellow academics, and soon his concept of anthropological criminology was stricken from college lectures. In recent years, modern scientists have managed to come up with some much more plausible reasons for certain people to become murderers. For example, MRI scans of psychopaths' brains often show abnormalities that aren't seen in the brains of non-psychopathic criminals. Test results seem to indicate that psychopaths don't grasp punishment in the same way that other people do. As a result, rehabilitation programs that might work with other criminals don't seem to have any effect on psychopaths. British neuroscientist Professor Adrian Rain has been scanning murderers' brains since the 1980s. Over the years, one recurring result he's seen is reduced activity in the prefrontal cortex, the area of the brain that controls emotional impulses. Rain points to childhood abuse and other head trauma often appearing to be a factor that can cause this reduced neural activity. Similar damage can sometimes be seen in the brains of professional athletes, like wrestlers and football players, which might help explain certain high-profile incidents, like the murder-suicide of wrestler Chris Benoit, who killed his wife and son in 2007 before taking his own life. Although modern science may be on track to finally be able to answer the question of what makes a murderer, there was a case of an American serial killer back in the late 1800s who confounded the scientific community and who was considered so brilliant that his brain remains on display to the public today. I'm Nate Hale, and I have an amazing brain, which I keep in a jar next to my microphone. And this is The Conspirators. One common misconception about serial killers that you can blame on books and movies is the idea that they're all criminal masterminds. In truth, the vast majority of serial killers are of average or even below average intelligence. It's only on a very rare occasion that a Ted Bundy-like killer comes along, someone possessing a higher than average intellect who seems capable of outsmarting the cops. The fact is, most serial killers aren't Hannibal Lecter. In fact, Many get away with their crimes for so long because no one has thus far connected them together. Oftentimes, it's just simple dumb luck that allows them to remain free. Edward Ruloff was the exception to the rule. He was born Edward Howard Ruloffson in 1819 to a privileged family. His grandfather was a wealthy landowner in New Brunswick, Canada and he would go on to become his province's first superintendent and a justice of the peace. Likewise, his father was a well-respected member of the community, a farmer and a horse breeder by trade. Edward had two brothers, one of whom became a renowned photographer and the other a lumber magnet. Edward would, of course, go on to eclipse all the reputations by becoming the most infamous criminal of his day. Edward Ruloff was considered to be a prodigy from an early age. One of those brilliant kids you hear about in the news, graduating college in their early teens or composing their first concerto by the time they're in grade school. As a child, he immersed himself in books, acquiring a knowledge of science and literature, 
and showing precocious mastery of ancient and modern languages. He was a remarkably quick study, and he seemed to pick up on difficult concepts easily. As a young man attending a private school in St. John, Edward began clerking for James Ketor and E.L. Thorne, partners in a local dry goods firm. However, shortly after Edward began working there, the business mysteriously burned to the ground. The two men rebuilt their business in another part of town, yet strangely, this business too caught fire. Although the two fires were chalked up to being acts of God, knowing what we know now of Edward, it seems likely neither blaze was an accident. After fire consumed his place of employment for the second time, Edward left the business to become a clerk in the law office of a prominent St. John barrister, Duncan Robertson. It was here that Edward learned enough about the law to pass himself off as a credible lawyer, a skill which he would put to use in later years. Ruloff seemed to exhibit many traits which modern criminal profilers would recognize, including an oversized belief in his own superiority and the feeling that he could never be caught. Sometime after he went to work for the law office, his former employer, E.L. Thorne, opened a new dry goods office in the same building. Not long after, someone broke into the store and stole a bolt of cloth. Then, shortly after that, Ruloff showed up for work wearing a new suit made from the very same fabric. Thorne couldn't ignore the brazen robbery, but he had a soft spot for Ruloff and offered to not press charges if he would simply pay for the material. Ruloff flat refused, so Thorne had no choice but to have him arrested. Ruloff was tried and sentenced to two years in the St. John Penitentiary. He was just 20 years old at the time. After his release in 1841, Ruloff made his way to New York City, where for a short time he studied bookkeeping and penmanship. Unable to find work in the city, Ruloff headed north to the village of Dryden, near Ithaca, where he got a job as a drug clerk. He managed to impress the locals with his apparent genius, which he tried to show off at every occasion. He began giving regular lectures on phrenology, a subject which he'd read up on during his stint in prison. Ruloff so impressed the locals with his smooth talk, his knowledge of languages, and his seeming mastery of every academic subject that they actually made him the headmaster of the local high school. It was during this time that he began courting one of his own students, a 17-year-old girl named Harriet Shute. He proposed marriage in 1843, and although Harriet's parents were leery of this young man they barely knew, they allowed the wedding to go forward. By then, Ruloff quit his teaching job and set himself up as a practitioner of botanical medicine. Edward began selling herbal remedies to the locals to combat their ailments, putting him in direct conflict with the town doctor, Dr. Henry W. Bull, who also happened to be Harriet's cousin. A few months after Harriet and Edward were married, Bull visited them at their home. He leaned in and gave Harriet an innocent peck on in the cheek, but this was enough to send Edward into a jealous rage. He accused Harriet of having an affair with her cousin. Harriet laughed off the accusation, which only made Edward even angrier. One day, while Harriet was helping Edward by crushing some peppercorns with a heavy iron pestle, Edward snatched the metal tool out of her hands and smashed her across the forehead with it, knocking her out. When Harriet regained consciousness, he begged her for forgiveness. 
in order to put some distance between Harriet and the cousin he was convinced she was sleeping with, he packed the two of them up and moved to Ithaca. But the move did nothing to calm Edward down. One night shortly after moving into their new home, Harriet began screaming for help. Her neighbors rushed over to see what was the matter. They found Edward grappling with Harriet and trying to force her to drink from a bottle of poison. The neighbors wrestled Edward away, and he ended up pitching the bottle out the window. Harriet swore to him that she'd been nothing but faithful. Edward struck her across the face and told her he couldn't stand the sight of her anymore, and that she should leave and go live with her lover. But Harriet didn't leave him, and soon enough they moved again to the nearby village of Lansing. It was there that Harriet gave birth to a daughter on April 25, 1845. The birth of his child seemed to have a calming effect on Edward, and for a time at least, he appeared to settle into domestic life and became, by all accounts, a loving husband and doting father. His reputation as a botanical physician spread, and he became a respected member of the community. This also appears to be the period when he became a murderer for the first time. His first two victims were the wife and infant child of Harriet's brother, William. During the first week of June, the child's mother brought the infant to Edward asking for a remedy for colic. Edward gave the baby one of his homemade concoctions. By the next day, the child went into convulsions and died. Two days later, Edward gave the grief-stricken mother what she believed to be a sedative to calm her nerves. Immediately after taking the elixir, she grew sick and died the same way as her child. Thirteen years later, the bodies of the mother and infant would be exhumed, and tests would show distinct levels of copper poison in their organs. But at the time the mother and baby died, most people just attributed their deaths to a tragic act of God. Three weeks later, Harriet was rocking her daughter to sleep when Edward appeared stirring one of his herbal concoctions into a teacup, which he tried to get the baby to drink. Harriet refused, telling him the baby was in perfect health. Edward was incensed. He insisted he detected illness in the child, and that he should be allowed to give the potion to her. But Harriet stood firm and refused to allow the cup anywhere near Priscilla. The following morning, Edward showed up on the doorstep of one of his neighbors, Thomas Robertson. He claimed that one of Harriet's cousins had showed up suddenly the night before and took Harriet and the baby on a trip to his home in Mottville, about ten miles away. But he said the cousin had left behind a large trunk that he hadn't had the room to carry on his wagon once Harriet and the baby were on board. So Edward was hoping to borrow Robertson's wagon so that he might return the trunk to Harriet's cousin. Robertson reluctantly agreed, and he helped load the heavy trunk onto the wagon. Ruloff rode away, whistling a cheerful tune. At one point, he even encountered a group of children on the side of the road and invited them to climb up on the wagon and join him for the ride. They bounced and played on top of the trunk while Ruloff entertained them with funny songs. It wouldn't be until much later that people learned that the trunk contained the bodies of Ruloff's wife and infant daughter. It's uncertain precisely how Edward killed the two of them. One account says that he and Harriet had gotten into another argument over his supposed infidelity, and he ended up beating her to death with the metal pestle. Then he gave his daughter a powerful narcotic to stop her crying. Another account stated that Edward suffocated the baby to death with a pillow, 
then knocked Harriet out with a dose of chloroform before he opened an artery and bled her to death. There are even differing accounts as to what he did with the bodies after they were dead. One rumor had it that he sold his wife and daughter's bodies to the Geneva Medical College for dissection. Whereas another story says that Edward drove the trunk containing their bodies to Cayuga Lake, where in the dead of night he rode them to the deepest part of the water and dropped them in. The next morning, Edward returned home with the now-empty trunk. He unloaded the trunk himself, then returned the wagon to Thomas Robertson, before grabbing a few of his belongings and leaving town, telling his neighbor before he went that he was off to join his wife and child. But Harriet's disappearance alarmed people. Her brothers, William and Ephraim, went to the house and were shocked to find it in complete disarray. Dirty dishes in the sink, clothes strewn about the floor, and most concerning, Harriet's clothing and travel basket still in the bedroom. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The brothers were convinced that Edward killed them, but with no bodies and no blood, there was no proof. They managed to track Edward down six weeks later. When they confronted him, Edward swore Harriet and the baby were fine although he gave conflicting accounts as to their exact whereabouts. He offered to write Harriet a letter to confirm that she was still alive. He penned the letter and handed it over to Ephraim, who took it to the post office. As soon as Ephraim was gone, Edward headed straight for the train station to get out of town. Ephraim learned of Edward's escape and tracked him to the train station. He caught sight of Edward on the crowded platform and managed to hop on board the train along with him. He cornered Edward in the rearmost car, and Edward swore he was just on his way to join Harriet and the baby in Ohio. Edward told Ephraim he was welcome to come with him, which he did. The pair proceeded to Buffalo, where they could catch a steamboat bound for Cleveland the next morning. But Edward managed to ditch him in the crowd. Ephraim was convinced Edward was hiding out in Cleveland, and with the help of a local constable, he located his brother-in-law laying low in a dive bar near the wharfs. Shute dragged Edward back to Buffalo in handcuffs, where an angry mob was waiting to see the man get carted off to the city jail. The authorities made an effort to drag Cuyahoga Lake, looking for Harriet and the baby's bodies, but they were never found. Without the bodies, the district attorney knew he didn't have enough evidence to convict Edward of murder. So instead he charged him with the abduction of his wife, which resulted in Edward being sentenced to 10 years in the state prison at Auburn. Edward Ruloff appeared to thrive in prison. Everyone, from his fellow inmates to the guards and warden, were all thoroughly impressed with his intellect and versatile nature. He became a legend in the prison's rug-making department, where his intricate designs were prized by customers. Edward immersed himself in the prison library, and here he dug into every scholarly book he could get his hands on. He had a particular gift for the subject of philology, the study of how languages and words develop, It was in prison that he became fluent in ancient Greek. During his stint in prison, 
Edward began composing a monumental work that he believed would explain the common origin of all the world's languages. It would become his life's work. Well, that and robbery and murder. He served the full ten years of his sentence, but by the time he was released, the locals were convinced that he hadn't served long enough. So shortly after being released, Edward was rearrested and charged with Harriet's murder. Edward Ruloff put the skills he'd learned clerking in the law offices years before, along with other legal knowledge he'd picked up to use, and represented himself in court. He argued that he shouldn't have to be charged with Harriet's murder, since he'd already been convicted of her abduction. And it worked. Once those charges were thrown out, the district attorney made another go at him by charging him with the death of his daughter Priscilla. This indictment was a rather remarkable document on its own, because no one knew precisely what had happened to the infant girl. Edward was charged with pretty much every possibility, including stabbing her, suffocating her, strangling her, poisoning her, and beating her to death. He went to trial in October 1865 and was found guilty and sentenced to death by hanging. While Edward was sitting in the Ithaca jail waiting for his appeal, he managed to befriend the keeper, Jacob Jarvis. Jacob had an 18-year-old son named Albert, whom he let visit Edward during the day. Edward managed to completely charm the young man, teaching him Latin, French, and stenography, among other lessons. Then on the night of May 5, 1857, while his parents were sleeping, Albert Jarvis undid the bolts on Edward's cell, and the pair fled together into the night. On the run from the law, Edward made his way to Meadville, Pennsylvania, where, using the name James Nelson, he applied to become a professor at Allegheny College. There were no openings available, but he still managed to befriend the college president, who introduced him to the upper crust of Meadville society. For a time, Edward managed to pass himself off as a scholar, charming and winning over pretty much everyone he came into contact with. In 1858, Edward left Meadville and returned to New York, where he committed a string of burglaries throughout the area. It was during the winter, while he was fleeing the scene of a burglary he committed at a jewelry shop in Warren, Pennsylvania, that his feet became frostbitten and he had to make his way to a local drugstore to find a remedy. Edward talked the druggist into allowing him to make his own frostbite treatment, but it didn't work, and he later had to have his toe amputated. Edward remained on the run, passing himself off in whatever town he ended up in as some sort of academic. The authorities eventually captured him in a small town near Columbus, where he had been working as the local school's writing teacher. Edward was extradited back to New York, but a distinguished attorney named Francis Miles Finch managed to get him released on a series of technicalities. But within 18 months, he was back behind bars in Sing Sing on a burglary charge. There, he met and teamed up with a petty thief named William Dexter. The two of them would soon add Albert Jarvis, the young man who helped him escape from jail, to their gang. Over the next six years, the gang continued their crime spree throughout the New York area. Over time, Edward would also begin to separate himself more and more from his crew, directing them to commit the thefts themselves, while he continued to work on his magnum opus about the formation of languages. He was a lot like James Moriarty, without having a Sherlock Holmes dogging his trail. In 1869, Edward presented his paper on the common origin of languages to the American Philological Society in Poughkeepsie, New York, 
using the name Yuri Lurio. He offered to sell his work for $500,000, but there were no takers. Disheartened, Edward returned to his life of crime, all the while continuing to work on his masterpiece, which he believed would earn him his place in history. On August 15, 1870, Ruloff was acting as a lookout on a job Al Jarvis had brought to the gang. Jarvis had learned that the Halbert brothers, a couple of merchants from Binghamton, had just received a big shipment of expensive silks. Their store was near the riverbank, and Jarvis assured Ruloff that they'd have an easy time getting away. Edward was a little leery of the job, but he agreed to go along with the other members of the gang against his better judgment. At around one in the morning, William Dexter and Al Jarvis broke into the rear of the store. They slipped on masks and removed their shoes in order to remain silent. They snuck upstairs and discovered two young clerks, Frederick Merrick and Gilbert Burroughs, fast asleep. Dexter doused a rag in chloroform and applied it to each of the sleeping men's faces in order to ensure they wouldn't wake up. Dexter and Jarvis then began gathering up the bolts of silk. Just as they were finishing up, Jarvis tripped and fell to the floor. Evidently, he hadn't done a good enough job with the chloroform because both of the clerks were startled awake by the noise. Seeing the masked men, two clerks climbed out of bed and rushed at them. They quickly managed to overpower Dexter and Jarvis, and it seemed as if the gang was going to be caught. But just as Merrick got Jarvis in a chokehold, Edward Ruloff came up behind him and shot him point-blank in the back of the skull. Edward Ruloff and his two partners fled the building through the basement. Behind them, Burroughs shouted murder into the night. A police manhunt began throughout the city. Two days later, they managed to trap Ruloff in a location not exactly befitting a criminal mastermind. They caught him hiding in an outhouse. They had an easy time linking him to the crime scene. Ruloff had left behind his shoes at the scene, one of which was stuffed with cloth to fill the gap made by his missing toe. The following day, police fished the bodies of Jarvis and Dexter out of the river. Each of them were found to have items belonging to Ruloff in their pockets. It didn't take a genius to realize Ruloff had killed them both. Ruloff was convicted of multiple murders and sentenced to die six days after his trial began. In his cell, he rushed frantically to complete his masterwork. Remarkably, numerous luminaries from the era came to his defense as he awaited the hangman's noose. Horace Greeley of the New York Tribune described Ruloff as one of the great scholars of his generation. In the very same paper, Mark Twain expressed regret that Ruloff hadn't focused his remarkable mind for the betterment of mankind. Despite pleas for leniency from numerous academics and other upper members of society, Ruloff was ultimately put to death on May 18, 1871. One newspaper report that may be a complete fabrication, but only added to the man's mystique, said that just before the executioner threw the switch, Ruloff casually tucked one hand into his pocket and told him, hurry it up. I want to be in hell in time for dinner. There was a lot of scientific interest in Ruloff's brain following his execution. His body was immediately transported to Geneva Medical College, the very same location that it was purported he may have sold the corpses of his wife and child to. And there, his own skull was sawed off, his brain removed, and weighed. He undoubtedly would have been delighted with what they found. His brain was enormous a full 10 ounces heavier than the average for a man his age. 
His brain was put in a jar and has been passed around for study for generations. It's currently on display at Columbia University in the Wilder Brain Collection. The Conspiratus is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much to all my fans for listening. Every week, more and more of you subscribe and leave me wonderful comments telling me how much you enjoy the show. If you want to continue helping us out, there are a few ways you can do it. First, we've added a donate button to our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, in order to help alleviate some of the costs of producing the show week after week. Also, I invite you to spread the word and to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. If you're not an iTunes listener, you can always follow us on Stitcher and the Google Play Store as well. Thanks for everything. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Guys, are you trying to stay in 20-year-old shape into your 30s and 40s and finding it, well, impossible? Then you need to listen to this. Beachbody, the company that revolutionized getting ripped at home with P90X and Insanity, has a brand new program just for you called Lift 4. It's part lift. It's part hit. With total body shredding results in just 30 to 40 minutes a day, right at home on the Beachbody On Demand app. That's how you get killer results as an adult. Go to Beachbody.com to sign up now and you can try Lift 4 for free. That's Beachbody.com.